Hi, this is the podcast channel of Lighthouse Church in Ottawa, Canada. We are a family. We don't do life alone. We are about the one, each and every one. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our hope and prayer is always for life change. Here is today's message. Be blessed as you listen. 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read 14 and 15, and then I'm going to read Acts chapter 1. So I have two readings this morning. And then we're going to take off from there as the Lord helps us. 2 Corinthians 5.14. The Bible says that for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, for him who died for them. And rose again. I read it again just for the just because I can. For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ influences us because we judge thus. And what have we judged? That if one died for all, then all of us died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Our second reading is in the book of Acts, chapter number one. I'll give you two seconds to get there. Acts chapter number one, from verse one to three. I'm reading NKJV. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. To whom also, remember this, he also, he presented, presented, showed himself alive after his suffering. That's after his death and his, you know, all that being buried by many, many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I'm trying to go somewhere today. I'm trying to get to a particular point in this conversation today. But for me to go there, I have to take a couple of steps back. I remember when I was growing up, I tell you guys I grew up in the hood. So for the only if you're from the hood, can you relate with this story? When I was growing up, the very first house that we owned um, as a family, you know, much, much younger, we had a huge compound um, and huge compound, level, <laughs> level, level playing field. It was paradise for a house full of boys. It was a stadium. It was, you know, an Olympic racing track. It was everything. We used it for everything that we did. But around Christmas period, every year, people, for whatever reason, I should actually ask why this was happening would give us livestock, all right? This is a hood problem. If you grew up in, like, you know, Buckingham Palace or something, you probably can't relate to this, or Kensington Palace. Just chill. But just follow my story. They give us livestock, all right? As Christmas gifts, I expect, maybe my parents, friends, or family members, I don't know. For some reason, every Christmas from, like, the 15th of the month of December, livestock showed up in our house, whether they were chicken, the odd turkey, all right? True story. Goats, hmm, goats rams cows the cows were really dull so we didn't really engage with the rams but there was something i mean the cows rather but there was something really fascinating about the rams right it's the fact that the rams were always fighting (laughs) and please if you are an animal rights person don't send me an email and don't call me i did not fight the rams they fought themselves i just observed all right we observed rams fighting so if you belong to peter or anything please don't call me i didn't do anything they were always fight and think about rams when they fight is that they go back, they take several steps back, okay? And then they come with full force because they're trying to gain momentum. And then they, of course, hit their heads against each other and it's survival of the fittest. They don't die or anything. When they're tired of fighting, they suspend until lunchtime. And then they fight again. That was like real entertainment for us. Um, that's what we did in my house growing up. So I'm basically trying to take a couple of steps back so that I can build momentum to where I'm actually going. So just stay with me and don't lose on this journey. 
I'm teaching now. There is a theory of habituation that every one of us is susceptible to. Every single human being is susceptible to this theory. And it's, it's really, it's a form of learning where your brain and your mind adjust, where you no longer respond to stimulus due to repeated exposure. All right. It's what we colloquially just call familiarity. All right. It, it's, it's actually called habituation where something that you would initially or you typically would react to in a certain way over a period of time, you have become used to it and you don't react anymore. You have lost the ability to respond. You've lost stimulus, all right, for that particular thing. Maybe it's an event, maybe it's a site, whatever it is. And it, it affects us in every area of our lives, by the way. So, for example, if you move into a really, really nice neighborhood, I mean, they're like $5 million homes. For the first one, two, three, four months, they're about, you'll drive into your neighborhood, into your estate or what have you, and you're looking at every single house and you're like, you're admiring the house. You're like, wow, that is, this is, this is an amazing neighborhood. Just stay there three, four months. And you realize that you're completely dead to that stimulus. The excitement that it creates in you is gone. It's completely eroded. It's the same with everything that happens. You get a new car and for the first couple of weeks, you are re you're looking for places to go. You're just jumping into the car for no reason. Say, I'm going to McDonald's. You, you want nothing. You just drive through and say, can I just have a fork? And you drive out. All right because you're still excited about it. But with repeated exposure, sometimes and almost all the time, stimulus goes away. If you have, if you meet, you know, someone, you, you, you meet, you know, a really handsome guy or really good looking girl or something, you, you, you know, you're really attracted to this person and you're admiring the person. Every time you see them, you're like, wow, God is, God, Jesus rose again. You look good. After a while, after a season, all right, you start to, lose the import all right of how a person looks it's not particularly good it's good in some seasons and for some things but it's bad in some areas of life and we all are susceptible to this we all have a tendency to the it's the danger of familiarity basically what i'm saying is that wonder fades wonder fades there's a song that says may we never lose our wonder where we should be remain wide-eyed and mystified let us be just like a child all right staring at the glory of at the beauty of our king because there is a tendency for us to habituate as it were if there's such a word all right we lose stimulus to things by repeated exposure and it's no different in the bible especially if you grew up you know in a christian home you've been going to church since you were two or three years old sunday school you've been exposed to the stories of the bible and so because of that you lose awe and wonder when you read some of these things the bible makes greatness common the Bible commonizes wonders and signs and mighty things. And so when you read the stories of the Bible, things that should naturally make a person stop and spin and do the cha-cha or run around, do whatever, you just read it and just gloss over it like, yeah, it's one of those things that happen in the Bible. But in reality, though, are those things that we should gloss over? Are those things that we should ignore? Should we really lose our stimulus to the things that the Bible says? Imagine what the Bible says, that Jesus came unto them at night walking on water. Walking on water. And we just read that. We're like, oh, yeah, he walked on water and Peter sank. I'm like, really? Is that really what we're going to say about that? Someone walks on water and we gloss over it. It's because we're used to Bible stories. David and Goliath, um, Noah's Ark. If you were in Sunday schools, they definitely taught you stuff about Noah and things like that, right? And this, this, this issue, this human tendency actually plagued the disciples of Jesus as well. Because you'd realize that even though they walked with him, it plagued the Israelites, but I don't want to talk about them today. This is Easter. Let's talk about the people that Jesus worked with. As they walked with Jesus, day in, day out, every day was like a front row seat to greatness. They saw him turn water into wine. Just imagine that, that I showed up in church one day with a transparent jug of water. Like, this is water, guys. This is water. Rebecca, taste it. Taste it. It's water. She's like, yep, we know Rebecca has integrity. It's water. I promise you guys. And then I pour it out and it becomes wine. That was, what, that was a day in the life of the disciples of Jesus. Oh, or a guy who's been dead four days and buried. He shows up to, to his tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And yeah, the guy who was dead and bound needed no assistance coming out by himself the force and the power in the command of Jesus dragged him out of the grave. I mean, this was the life that they lived. So it's very easy for you to see how they got used to greatness. They got used to seeing Jesus 
do amazing things. And so when he died, when he was killed on the cross, don't forget this, that Jesus was only dead for three days and three nights. In three days, in under three days, these guys who walked with him consistently, they walked away from him. I mean, it didn't even take a week for the memory of his greatness to fade. They just went back. It was like he's dead. Tomorrow we go fishing. That's it. That's it. And, and, and that, that worried me a little bit. You know, he spends three years with you. He's dead, not barely 24 to 48 hours, and you have returned to your previous life. To your previous life. But there is something that the resurrection of Jesus did for these guys. It was a game changer for them. There was no way to habituate that. There was no way for them to express that or experience that in a common way and remain the same. There was a substance that was furnished in the heart of his disciples by his resurrection. And so in Acts chapter 1 that we read, the Bible says that he showed himself alive to them for many days with many proofs. Many proofs. I mean, one of the guys said, I don't believe it's you. He said, look, put your hand. Feel, feel the, the bruise. Feel the, the, you know, the, the, my scars. Look. It's amazing, though, that Jesus was completely brutalized. His old body was, I mean, he was scarred from top to bottom. But it's amazing that when he resurrected from the dead, he only kept some scars. Isn't that amazing? Because he didn't have the scars on his head. He didn't have, like, the scars on his face and everything. Because that would have been a sight to see. Anyone who saw him would have said, like, this is, this, is, this is madness. Somehow his body had transformed, but he kept some scars. So that doubters, <laughs> like Thomas, could understand that indeed he rose again. And the Bible says he showed himself alive. I don't ever forget that. He showed himself alive to his disciples for many days, not just one day, so it wasn't a fluke, for 40 days and with many undisputable, many infallible proofs that he was alive. And that furnished a substance on the hearts of these guys that they never went back to what they were doing before they met him. So think about this. He spent three years with them, all kinds of miracles. There's, name it. The Bible records just a few of the miracles that Jesus did. Three years, miracles galore. In three days, they walked away. Then he spent 40 days in his resurrected state with them, and they never returned back. They never returned back. They stayed the course, and they never turned back. There is something that an encounter with the reason Jesus does for a person that changes them forever. My prayer for you is that he will show himself alive in your life in the name of Jesus. My prayer for you is that Jesus, Jesus will show himself alive. And I know you think, yes, I know he's alive. I believe it. But the truth of the matter is this. If we believe that Jesus is alive. So remember there was a guy in the Bible that came to Jesus. He brought, I think he was a son or something to Jesus. And Jesus said, do you believe I'm able to do this? And he said to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. I personally believe that that's the state of the church. We believe. We have faith in him. We put our faith in him. And we do believe. But there is a dimension of faith that we don't have. Because to many people, they have not seen him alive. He hasn't shown himself alive to them by many infallible proofs. And my prayer for you is this. It's very simple. I want you to pray that for yourself right now. We can interrupt our regular scheduled programming with a 30-second prayer. Ask the Lord, show yourself alive in my life. Listen, it doesn't have to show up in a vision. If he wants to show up to you in an encounter, that's good too. I will take that. But there are things in your life that you know that only Jesus can do. And if he does those things for you, or if he does those things in you or through you, you will know for a fact that that would furnish the substance that you need, that Jesus is alive. So take 30 seconds and say, Jesus, show, I'm praying for everyone watching me more than anything today, that you will show yourself alive to us by many infallible. Ask him, ask him that one thing, that one situation. Show my life, show yourself alive in this situation by proof that cannot be denied in the name of 
of Jesus. Go from, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, to I believe, I truly believe, I will die believing. That's where we want to get to. Show yourself alive. Take five more seconds. Father, I ask that you show yourself alive in our lives. In the name, in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, what happens, though, when Jesus shows himself alive in your life is this. It's the book of Acts. The result is what we get in the book of Acts. It's, it's an epistle, as it were. It's historical, mind-blowing events that need to be documented. So the first thing I noticed, so when I read the book of Acts, I tried to summarize the book of Acts into three things. If I was to say, what are three things that stood out to me about the disciples or the apostles of Jesus? When I read the book of Acts, three things. The first thing is their conviction. So this experience, this encounter with the risen Jesus furnished a level of conviction on their heart that was just mind-boggling to me. Their conviction led many of them to die physically, gruesome deaths, and they would not deny Jesus. That's the conviction that's lacking in the body of Christ today. In Acts chapter 4, they called them from verse 15, 16, they're about, they said, that the Bible says that the rulers threatened them and said to them, never ever again should you speak in the name of Jesus. If we hear you even say, Jay, you're going to be locked in prison. And the Bible says in Acts 4.20 that the disciples, the apostles responded right there on the spot and said, look, we cannot but speak the things which we have heard and seen. There was a conviction in their heart by that encounter. The reason why you believe God today and you don't believe him tomorrow, the reason why you speak with you know, all the faith in the world when you're in church and when you go to your secret place, you're like, oh, I don't even know if God is going to answer this prayer. I don't even know if God can do this. I think this is an impossible situation. It's because he has not shown himself alive to you. I assure you, when he shows himself alive to you, your conviction would be out of this world. It will be absurd. Read the book of Acts. I can conclude three things. The first thing is conviction. Read the entire book. They are so, so persuaded, okay? They are so compelled by the revelation that they had that nothing could stand in their way. Nothing. They locked them in prison. An angel of God came, set them out of prison, and they didn't go into hiding. They went and stood in the town square and continued to declare the goodness of Jesus. That is conviction that's lacking in the body of Christ today. We cannot. We cannot. There is no option. There is no scenario in which we stay silent about the things that we have heard or seen. The, th the second thing, though, that marks them is the exploits that they did. So conviction, exploits. So read the book of Acts, you see exploits, exploits. Ex I mean, the shadow of Peter starts to heal the sick, starts to cast out devils. His shadow, people, his shadow. In Acts chapter 3, they get to the gate called Beautiful, and there's a guy who sits in there. This is one of those stories in the Bible that we tend to gloss over, like I said, because of this habituation thing. Because we think, eh, a lame guy walked. But think about the fact that this guy was 40 years old. 40. 40. He had never walked a day in his life. And he, he came into contact with Peter and John. And the Bible says, Peter said to him, look on us. Silver and gold I don't have, but such as I have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus, the risen king who showed himself alive to me for many days with infallible proofs, rise up and walk. And the Bible says the guy did not respond. And Peter was like, I don't know what's wrong with you. You are tripping. He grabbed him by the hand and the guy started to walk, to run, to jump, to leap into the temple, praising God. Because Peter had a revelation of Jesus. He's like, I cannot give a command in the name of a person who I saw killed, murdered buried, all right, and is alive, and you will not respond to that, that order. So stand up now and walk. I mean, exploits. And while you're saying, well, that's not my problem, pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not called to pulpit ministry. That's amazing. That's good. Not everyone is called to pulpit ministry. But what I can assure you is that you're called to one area, one sphere of life or the other, whether it's entertainment, whether it's media, whether it's sports, whether it's innovation, wherever God has called, whether it's even your family, your family, wherever God has called you, I promise you there's going to be a need for supernatural exploits in, in that sphere of influence. The, this, when you look at the apostles in the book of Acts, they made the supernatural occur naturally, 
and they did the natural with supernatural abilities. They made the natural occur with supernatural abilities, and they did supernatural things naturally. That's what I call exploits. So in your life, if exploits are lacking, if we cannot write the book of Acts about you, the Acts of Essie and the Acts of the Bishop, or the Metropolitan, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of Helen and everybody else in our church, everyone listening to me right now, we need a fresh revelation of the risen Christ. Because in your sphere of influence, in the places where you operate, in your family, your nuclear, your extended family, where you see traces and fingerprints of the enemy, you need to bring exploits into that, into that arena because you have seen the risen Jesus. Conviction, exploits. And the third thing you can see in the book of Acts is death. <laughs> death. Listen, I remember many years ago, 2008 was the year. I had just finished my master's in D.C. And I finished, I think I finished in May. By July, I was back in Nigeria because that was my plan. I wanted to go home, start a business and do, I had a, a whole I had my whole life planned out. It's funny how you have your whole life planned out. And God says, uh, dream on, fella. Anyways, that's what God told me. Anyways, so I got to Nigeria. I had a plan and everything. And when I was planning to move, my final month, I had this heaviness in my heart. And the heaviness was really, I wasn't, I wasn't, everybody else was concerned. Why would you move to Nigeria? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, look, from the streets, I'll survive. I'm good. Um, I had no concern about the economy, about my prospects, about security, about anything that worried people. The only concern I had was would I be able to continue to grow spiritually? That was my real, my honest, honest fear was would I lose momentum? Because I met the Lord in 2005. That was just three years before. 2006, 2007, I started chasing after God with speed. I understood the place of a relationship with God. And I was worried. I belonged to a church where you know, I was growing. I remember those days. I told you guys a story before. I repeat it for the sake of those who knew. I was really close to my pastor. I used to drive him up and down wherever he was going. That was my job. Um, one of my many jobs, anyways, at the time. And I remember those days when pastor called a prayer. <laughs> this is my God. I pray for his soul. He called a prayer meeting from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Every day. Every day, fam. And I remember those days. I'll be, I was doing my master's. I'll be in the library. I jump out of the library, dash down to church. We'll pray and one I'll go back and continue studying. That was that was this the environment, the climate in which I was. So I was growing in leaps and bounds. I was encouraged. Another time when that season was over, he called a 5 a.m. prayer meeting at his house, not Zoom, at his house, people. I had to get up, get out of bed, <laughs> drive to his house at 5 a.m. Obviously, God was training me, God was building me in that season. So when I was moving, I was wondering, God. I hope I can continue to grow spiritually. I don't want to plateau. I don't want to peak. I don't want to, you know, draw back. I don't want to lose the fire that you've put in me. And so God gave, gave me an instruction, attend a particular church. So that was good. I attended a church that had five members. Um, and so I joined that church. I'm not talking about that right now. But after a while, serving in that church, you know, we started to grow. Church started to grow and all that. Brought some people on board. You know, team was formed. And so there were members of the team older people, older mem older family members, I mean, older couples, I guess I would call them. And they said, oh, you know, you like to pray. So there's this prayer meeting that we attend on Fridays in the afternoon. Okay, so I, was, I had my own business, so I had flexibility on my schedule. I said, if it's prayer, count me in, I'm there. So they invited me to this prayer meeting on a Friday afternoon. And I, I popped in there the first time. And we started, you know, they were praying. Um, they, were, they had about three or so leaders and they were praying. I was, I was like, yeah, I was feeling the prayers. It was really great. I was leading prayers. It was right on point. Very balanced and everything. And then the first guy was done leading prayers. And then we moved to the second guy who was another leader. And this guy says, now we are going to pray. Sorry, I have to, go to, I have to switch to a Nigerian accent. All right, just allow me for a minute. Because I, I, this is exactly what, this is what happened to me. No joke. Now we are going to pray. Repeat after me. So I opened one eye. I already knew that I was in for trouble. This is what the guy said. Every enemy, 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 from my father's house, not father, father. Don't forget, we are repeating this after him. Okay? From my father's house and my mother's house, not mother, mother. Opposing my destiny. Now it gets good. 
What are you waiting for? Fall down and die. Die, 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 die. Prayers, prayers. So I said, uh, I opened my two eyes at this point and the place erupted in prayers and I was very confused. I should have known that guy was suspect because when the other guy was leading prayers, this guy was praying about the love of God and the growth of the church and the body of Christ should be strengthened. Really nice prayers, the kind of prayers I love to pray. This random guy, this other guy, was just standing in the corner and he would punctuate the prayers with his scream. He would just shout, consuming fire! And I'm like, bro, oh, in a dialect, by the way. And then five seconds and 12, 20, five minutes and 20 seconds later, consuming fire! So I knew this guy was really suspicious. Then he said, we should pray all our enemies fall down and die. What are you waiting for? Fall down. So I had a lot of questions. I had a good laugh. But then I threatened my friends that invited me. Don't, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll pray at home. All right. From now on, leave me out of these prayer meetings. But fall down and die. But the title of my topic today is actually fall down and die. But a different application. Let's read the Bible. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus answered, saying, the hour has come. The hour has come. That the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24. Most assuredly. In other words, I promise you. Most assuredly, I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat does what? Falls down <laughs> and dies. Falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it produces much grain. Unless a grain of wheat falls down, falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Fall down and die. I said to us that the third thing that you can see in the book of Acts is death. One of the things that happens when you have an encounter with the risen Jesus is it becomes easy for you to die. By the way, and I've preached about this before, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a different angle to this. Okay, if you want to listen to the previous sermon, it's the walking dead. All right? Death is not a nice to have in our faith. It's a requirement to follow Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone, anybody desires to come after me, Matthew 16 and verse 24, if anybody, if it's your desire to follow me, he says to you that you must deny self Take up your cross and then follow him. I just had this, this vision of you saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, 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 hold your horses, dude. Have you denied self? Have you taken up your cross? Now follow me. It's almost like my kids. Every time I want to step out of the house, daddy, can I come with you? Daddy, can I come with you? Daddy, can I come with you? And if I'm going to oblige them for any reason, I'm, I'm giving them conditions. I'm like, okay, oh, hold your horses. Put your shoes on. Put your jacket on, comb your hair, then we can go out. And Jesus says, if anybody, anybody desires to follow me, he says, first deny self, take up your cross and follow me. And so the reason why we struggle with this dying thing is because we haven't encountered him alive. These guys had absolutely no qualms. <laughs> Living a life that was completely focused on Jesus, where Jesus was the object and the center of everything that they were doing after they saw him alive. Nobody had to convince them. The reason why we cajole and we're like, oh, and people are like, so pastor, are you really saying that this is what God wants me? Is, this, is it really? I'm like, the reason why we have to go through this painful explanation for all of us and convince ourselves that we should is because we haven't seen him alive. It was like these guys saw him and they just like, Self died, flesh died, all you, Jesus only, Jesus, and nothing else. The Bible says in Revelation, 
where the Bible's talking about the, the encounter that John, John the Revelator, had with Jesus. Don't forget, John was one of his disciples. John was the closest guy to him. And the Bible says that when John saw him, when John saw him in that vision of heaven, the Bible says, I fell like, like a dead man. I, you, you have, once you see him alive, death is the natural consequence of that. You will immediately start to strive to meet his requirement of death. So Jesus says that he's saying to us when he said this, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Because he was talking about his resurrection, his um, death and burial and all that, by the way. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He's saying to us that he's not the only one that's expected to die. And that's the news I bring to you today. That Jesus is not, I know we're here to celebrate his death, his burial and his resurrection. But Easter is a kingdom pattern. Easter is a kingdom pattern. Easter is not just a celebration. It is a model of how things work in the kingdom. So Jesus says, yes, I'm the firstborn among many. I'll die. I'll give my life. But there is also something that must die in you. It's flesh itself. That the pattern of death, burial, and resurrection is a kingdom pattern. And if you must follow me, if you choose to say, I can't, I can't do it. I just want to hold on to my grain. He says, fine, you can keep your grain. But it remains alone. Abraham, you can keep Isaac, but then there will never be Israel. You can keep Jacob, you can keep yourself, because Jacob wrestled with God and he came to that place where he had to die to self. Where the, you know, the angel asked him, what's your name? He just gave up. My name is Jacob. And the Bible says, from today, you shall no longer be called Jacob, you shall be called Israel. When you choose to hold on to what you have, when you choose not to die, that's all you're going to get. But Jesus says that I show you a better way, which is that you die as well, just as I have, and then you will produce much more than you ever imagined. So Easter is beyond the celebration. It's beyond rice and turkey. It's beyond everything that's cooking in your oven, oven today. It's a call to responsibility to say, I will toe the line of this kingdom pattern. And if you will not, Jesus says, just hold your horses. He doesn't say, Use your cross. He says, take it up and follow me. And you'll understand why you need to do that in a second. And so when we start to sing songs, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. You sang that song when you were, to follow Jesus. Jesus is probably looking at you like, are you, are you, are you kidding me right now? You've decided to follow me? Uh, hold on. <laughs> Where's your cross, bro? And it's not the cross you wear on your neck, by the way. It's not the, it's not the necklace or the earrings um, Tofumi had yesterday. <laughs> it's not, none of those. All right, it's not the one on your Bible that you put under your pillow at night and you open to Psalm 91 and say, plus Jesus minus Satan, the cross is made. No, no, no. He says, take up this cross, this metaphoric cross, he says, and follow me. Okay? If no one joins me, if no one joins me, still I will follow. You don't, Jesus is like, you are not even following, so no one is, jo is joining you to begin with. So he says, carry your cross and follow me. Drag it with you. Drag it with you because you will need it every step of the way. It's not a one-time thing. And by the way, let me distinguish. I'm not talking about death to flesh here today. I'm talking about death to self. Death to flesh, I've talked about that in The Walking Dead. Flesh is always sin. So if you're looking for a demarcation, when you talk flesh, it's usually sin. There's some blurred lines, but flesh, completely sin. Self is will. Your will. Your will. So if you're still in the, you're still in the, in the phase where you're still asking, um, Pastor... You know, you know, I'm dating this guy right now, and you know, does God really say that we cannot just really just a little bit of kissy kissy? Is that okay? Listen, we have that train because I said to you that we're on a journey of discipleship, and that's exactly what we're doing. And in this season, I remember God, the Lord, said to me last year, "Raise me disciples." That 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 you know that the the church of God that leaven had been introduced into the church of Christ, and the Bible says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, which is like yeast. Right, as it were. And the truth about it is this. When you stand before God, God would ask you based on the assignment that he has called you to do. He won't ask you some general questions. You will be accountable for the things that, like he has committed into your hands. So in this season, the emphasis on my heart is discipleship. Because that's what God is saying. I, I'm looking for men that can stand. I'm not looking for consumer Christians. I'm looking for responsible. I'm looking for contributors. I'm looking for kingdom-minded people. Looking for kingdom-minded people. So if you're still in that, oh, pastor, you know, is this sinful? You're still asking those questions about dying to flesh. 
this train, we left you in Newfoundland, okay, or Yukon. You need to hop on the next train and catch us in Ottawa. We've left you behind long ago. We're now talking death to self because death to self is a higher consecration. We're not talking sin because self sometimes is not sinful. It's not sinful to have a will. It's not sinful. It's just what does God want? What, what will God have you do? And so when you think about the nation of Israel, every Israelite has a consecration. There are things that an Israelite must never do. They must never eat certain foods, for example. They must never intermarry. Okay? That's the general consecration of an Israelite. There's a consecration for the tribe of Levi because they're the tribe of priests. A higher consecration. So everything that applies to the Israelites plus more to the Levites. There's a consecration for the high priest. Everything that applies to the Levites and the Israelites plus more. And then in Israel, there are the Nazarenes or the Nazarites. Those guys are the closest representation or typology of dying to self. Because the things that their consecration demands of them, okay, have nothing to do with sin. For example, they must not shave their hair. They're like, it's not a sin to shave your hair, but it's a consecration. So sometimes consecrations are not about sin. It's just about what God says to you in a season. They must not touch alcohol, never drink alcohol, never touch a dead thing. So that's the consecration of the Nazarene. And so we're talking to, in that place now, we're talking about death to self. You're, you're, you're maturing. And the thing is this, guys. Listen, I'm encouraging you because it encouraged me as well. God can do way more with death than with life. Say that again so that the people at the back can hear me. God can do way more with death than he can do with life. Because if you hold on to that grain of seed, this is my life. These are my desires. These are all the things I want to do. And nothing can change my mind. And I've had this ambition since I was five. And this is my dream. And all that. And that's fantastic. You should have dreams. And I'll tell you your, what your approach should be to those things in a second. God says it remains alone. That's it. Let's even assume that you achieve that. All it is is still a grain of wheat. Compared to what God intends to do when you put it in the ground. And die because once it dies, it's no longer your responsibility, it's his responsibility. What becomes of it? You see, these guys completely died to self. Paul is on a mission, Paul is a driven individual. His personality tells you that he's a very ambitious fellow. He's on a mission, he encounters the reason Jesus on the road to Damascus has an encounter with the Lord. And God says to him, Now turn around, this is what I want you to do. Turns his entire life around 360 degrees, and he goes off on a different tangent. It's like he never existed anymore. And God, the only thing that exists is what exists within the frame of reference of what God would have him do. God does his best work with death. It's like this. You're holding on to God with both hands. This is what dying to self looks like. And so you're wondering, if I'm holding on to God with both hands, how do I hold on to every other thing that I have before me in life? This is what you do. You take everything, put it in a bag, and throw it in God. And then you hold on to God. So anything that you cannot see in God, in your life, you need to, and some things, when you throw it in the bag, it comes right back out. Like God flings it out. And some people are like, ah, give me that. No, I don't want to let that go. And so you're holding on to other things with one hand and you're trying to hold on to God with, with another hand. You can never hold on to God with one hand. God never takes part. God takes everything. God takes all. God takes all. God takes all. So you have to hold on to him. And everything else that you see in life, your family, your career, your business, your calling, your everything, you see it through him and in him. Because the Bible says that it is in him. In him. Acts 17 and 28. It is in him that we move, we live, and we have our being. Outside of him, we don't live. Outside of him, we don't move. And outside of him, we don't have a being. And so one of the things about death to self, you think about the story of Jesus. I want to tie this up now. Lord, help me. And Jesus gets to the garden of Gethsemane. Don't forget, Jesus lived a sinless life, so he had crucified flesh. And then, obviously, we see him yield to the will of the Father consistently, so we could see that he had crucified self. But like I said, you take up this cross and follow, because it's going to be a consistent crucifixion. It's not a one-time thing. It's not like, oh, this one time God told me not to do something and I didn't do it. Ha, ha, ha. I've achieved. No. Next week, you're going to realize that, oh, where's that cross? I think I need it again, because there's something else on the horizon. And so Jesus gets to Gethsemane. Gethsemane is gross, guys. Gethsemane is a terrible place to be. It's the place where all your bragging, all your, I have decided to follow Jesus, all your confession gets tested. 
And he's looking and he's like, are you serious? I have to go through this. He's not saying I don't want to die. He's just saying, is there another way? So he's not, it's not a sin. He's just saying, is there another way? And God says, dude, what you need is strength. Angel, <laughs> strengthen him. Gethsemane is gross. It's a place of commitment and surrender. And you will get there. For you, your Gethsemane might look different. You get to a place where, you know, in one season, for example, God says to you, don't date anybody. I'm not saying, it's an analogy, okay? So don't take this literally. I'm just saying, God says to you, don't date. It's not a sin to date, depending on what denomination you're from. But in our church, in our church we don't believe it's a sin to date. But God says to you, don't date anybody. That's your, you want to date, all your friends are dating, and that's your dying to self in that moment. And you say, yes, anything God tells me to do, I'll do. Until, until the very guy that you have a crush on, or the very girl who you really, really like, now starts to like you back. It becomes really hard, doesn't it, to, be, to follow Jesus. Does it, it becomes really hard to maintain your consecration. You're like, well, we're not going to sin, you know, but God said, do nothing. That's Gethsemane. And then the Bible says Jesus was, he started to sweat blood. Started to sweat blood. Gethsemane is a place of, of tears, of sweat. It's a place where a person has just offended you. They've wronged you. You're angry. You're in the right. They're, com- they're, they're, com- they're dead wrong. And God says to you, go apologize. Oh, I have decided to follow Jesus, right? So you're dead to self. Go apologize. And you're like, seriously, God, can you find another way? Can you find another way? And God says, no, that's the way. Go and apologize. Dead to self. Dead to self. Gethsemane. And the thing about Gethsemane is that it's, it's, it's actually a door. Because after Gethsemane, Jesus goes, they pick him up, they take him to the, the high priest. That's why you want to take up your cross and continue to follow him. And he gets to the high priest and these guys are just talking out of the sides of their mouth and he's there looking at them like are you kidding me i made you dude they're mocking him the soldiers beat him up they take him from there they take it and at every step of the way jesus could have changed his mind if he went from Gethsemane straight to the cross at least you would say he didn't have much opportunity to change his mind it's the same thing like that the analogy i was just saying this guy who you you know you've been looking at and He's really cute. He's exactly your type. When you wrote your list when you were 13, he ticks all the boxes. All of a sudden, he comes to you and he's now pursuing you. He's like, baby, let me drink your bath water. Crazy stuff. And you're like, oh, God, why are you tempting me with this? Why are you tempting me with this? And the guy is really everything you want. And God is like, what are you going to do? God is not against your happiness. God is looking to see, are you dead to self? Because I can do much more. I will bring much better. That grain of seed Unless it falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. He went from there, he went to you know, Pontius Pilate. He went from Pontius Pilate, he went to Herod. And every step of the way, I'm like, Jesus could really have just changed his mind. I said, let me just show you guys how powerful I am. Let me just show you. Let me just act like the mother of dragons. You know, Dracarys. <laughs> like, personally, if, if I was Jesus. And they took me to the cross and I endured all that suffering naked on the cross. My last words would not be, it is finished. It would be Dracaris. And if you don't know what Dracaris means, it's tongues. It's the mother of dragons. That's dragon fire. God would just kill all of them for me right now. But Jesus never did that because he was dead to self. He put the will of the Father above his immediate needs, above his most pressing needs. Because he was dead to self. You must carry this cross with you. The very friend that has upset you and you're upset about and God says, don't say anything to her. That same friend will come to you within the next one hour and say, "Um, can you do me a favor? (laughs) And God is looking at you to see. That's the point where you react. You're like, listen, are you from the devil? You really just pissed me off. I'm still trying to work this thing out with God to leave you alone and spare you the lashing I was going to give you. And now you've come looking for a favor. And then you're like, "Um, let me think about it. And the friend goes, that's how you always behave. You're not very nice. And you're like, oh, Jesus, that is the temptation from Gethsemane (laughs) to a high priest, to Pontius Pilate, so you get to the cross. You carry the cross with you and go. It's death to self. So what does it look like? Self-absorption. Are you absorbed with yourself? Self-absorption, guys. Are you self-centered? Is everything about you? And even in situations, you never see God's perspective. You never see people's perspectives. You only see your perspective. God says, no, 
No, no, no, no, no. Are you self-reliant? Well, that's a big one. Because we know those who are self-reliant by how you approach situations. Do you try to figure things out before you talk to God? Are you self-reliant? Are you self-promoting? Are you self-promoting? Are you absorbed with yourself? Listen to yourself talk and judge. If you're dead to self, the Lord spoke to me specifically about this one. And this one shook me because I'm like, God, are you serious? He says, if you're dead to self, you cannot worry. I said, really? I guess myself is very alive then. <laughs> For real. He's like, yeah, because you're dead to self. It means that it's me. You, you have to look unto me and me alone. So is worry overtaking your life? Dead to self. So if you're dead to self, you cannot be offended. You cannot hold grudges. If you're dead to self, you cannot even fear. You know that? So a dead, a dead body and a, a grenade went up beside. He's not going to move. Can't fear. Lost your ability to fear. It's God in him. In him. In him. I live. I move. I have my being. In him. Dead people, they can't take glory. Are you always taking the glory? Anything happens, you find a way to, you know, make it about you. Dead people have no agenda. Dead people live like this. God, what would you have us do in this season? And the things that you're thinking about doing that come to your heart and have legitimacy, you subject it to his will. God, I'm thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts? Dead people are in a state of perpetual rest. But specifically around worry, the Lord said to tell someone, just leave it alone to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. I know that we struggle. Oh, it's so hard. This is, this is impossible to do, to be dead to self, really. Because we don't know what lies on the other side. But let me say, let me encourage you that it's a law. And something about laws is you don't have to know how they work. They just work. Like gravity. I don't know how gravity works, but I know that if I walk off a building, I'm coming down. It's a law. And this is a law with God that if you will give what's in your hand. If you will die to self, leave the rest to me. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. So stop worrying. Don't stress yourself to an early grave because you cannot die to self. You think, I have to fix it. I have to find a solution. I have to find a remedy. It doesn't work that way. Doubt to self. For those of us who struggle with letting go because you think that the things you really want in life are so critical, they're so important. How could God want me to live this? Let me assure you, if you hold on to it, it remains alone. And in the text that we read, our very first text in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians rather 5, it says that he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Today I'm inviting you not to celebrate Easter, but to live Easter. You see, heaven is looking for a celebration of its own. and Looking upon the earth to see which of us will give heaven an Easter celebration. And it's not a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. They already did that many years ago, the, the, the angels of God and all that. But this is the Easter of you, of your death and your burial and your resurrection. That you die to self so that you can become alive in him. I want to be the reason why heaven has a party. I want to be the guy that Jesus stands up for like Stephen. I want to wonder that Jesus says, this is my beloved son. This is a follower and a follower indeed. Because he followed me the way he ought to. I want to close this. If Jesus showed himself alive to you, it would be easier for you to give, to let go. And let him have his way. Much easier. Much easier. You know, the Bible says to us that, Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me. Those of you that labor, you're heavy laden, I, I'll give you rest. 
That's the first one. In the next verse, he says, Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. So think about this. Come unto me, you labor and heavy laden. That's a salvation call. All of you just come. Just come, just come, just come. Uh, but once you come, he says, now I take your burdens and all that. But I'm going to give you something. It's called a yoke. Take it upon you. He says, my yoke is light. And you have to understand the principle of yoking. It's like a wooden thing that they used to yoke two animals of equal strength and size together so that they can work and till the ground. So they have to be equal strength. Otherwise, the weaker one will die. And so when you come and yoke yourself to Jesus, obviously you're the weaker one. This is an invitation to death. The yoking material is also wood, just like the cross is made of wood. He says, come, I'm going to give you a gift. And you expect gold and silver. He says, the gift I give you is a yoke. Take it, put it up on your neck. And once you yoke yourself with him, the stronger one lives, the weaker one will be dead. And then I can do everything I want to do through your life. All the plans that I have for you and of which I have many can only come to pass when you're dead to self. You're worrying about too many things. You're chasing the wind. You're stressing out. You're fearful of the future. He says, the reason why is because you think it's your job to fix it. It's not. It's not. I used to think I wasn't a warrior, and I'm not. It takes a lot to worry me. But in some seasons when certain things came against me, I found myself deep in worry. And I started to think about it and say, God, what's, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of, really? Is that I would not be able to fix the issues. It's not mine to fix. Take it. And if you don't fix it, I'm dead. I cannot be embarrassed if I'm dead. I cannot feel panic if I'm dead. I cannot worry if I'm dead. I have no agenda if I'm dead. I'm alive to you. Let me focus on the thing that you would have me do. And that was a game changer for me. And so my invitation to you today, I have two invitations. The first group of people is to come and lay your burdens down. He said, come unto me. Lay your burdens down. I died for you. I rose again. I'm worth following. But he said, if, if you will not die to self. Anyone that will not deny himself, he says that he's not worthy. You're not worthy of my sacrifice. That's strong. That's strong. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you were not willing to do what the requirement is, he says, you're not worthy of my sacrifice. You're not worthy. So don't claim me. Don't just confess me. And then you're, you're, you turn your back on the responsibility. Jesus says that you're not worthy. Anyone who would not do this is not worthy of me. I want us to show ourselves worthy of him today. The second decision I need to make is, God, I give it all to you. I surrender all indeed. I give it to you. I follow you in spirit and in truth. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. If you want to be a blessing to others, share the message. To stay connected, download our app and follow us on Instagram at Lighthouse Church Ottawa. We love you.